Hi, welcome to the ACE Tip Podcast. We come to you from the Center for Advancing Correctional Excellence, ACE, at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia, and via the Coordination and Translation Center, CTC, of the National Institute on Drug Abuse's Justice Opioid Community Innovation Network, or JCOIN. I'm your host, Danielle Rudes, Associate Professor of Criminology, Law, and Society, and the Deputy Director at ACE, and one of the leads on the Capacity Building Corps of the CTC for JCOIN. This podcast is all about translating science into sense. It's about helping criminal justice practitioners, students, and everyday people learn about cool developments in the justice research world, but without all the dryness of the ivory tower. There's a lot of really great research out there, and we'd like to bring it to you in bite-sized doses to help you understand it and be able to use it. No PhD required. Each episode will break down scientific research into a 12 to 15 minute podcast. You can listen to it wherever you are and when it's convenient for you. We'll give you the science, but in a way that makes sense. We also finish with an explanation that translates the research into real words that explain why it's important and how and why you might want to use it. So let's get started. When you imagine a U.S. prison, what do you see? A gritty and violent place like the show Oz, filled with quirky characters and sad tales like Orange is the New Black? Do you see the cruel warden from Shawshank Redemption? Do you imagine violence or boredom? How do you envision the relationship between correctional officers and those who are incarcerated? The reality is we don't understand much about our U.S. prisons and the people housed in them or the people who work in them. Even so, the U.S. prison system is sprawling. Like the roots of an invasive ivy, the system has grown and thrived, often taking over the barren landscape of lost industries. In 2019, over 1.5 million people were incarcerated in state and federal prisons. But as prisons grew, our understanding of them diminished. We have, at best, a few pixels in a picture that is hard to make out. But it hasn't always been this way. The time between the 1950s and the 1970s might be considered the golden age of prison research in the United States when Gresham Sykes published Society of Captives and James Jacobs wrote Stateville. Prison officials welcomed researchers through the gates and the rehabilitative ideal in prisons was strong. But then something changed. As more and more prisons sprang up all over the country, their doors seemingly closed to outsiders. Understanding our U.S. prison system is an imperative research agenda and one fraught with challenges. This podcast is for those interested in taking up those challenges, opening the prison doors, and turning the lights back on. Dr. Karamet Ryder of the University of California, Irvine, wanted to study prisons to document how U.S. mass incarceration has produced extreme injustices. She wanted to understand exactly how these injustices are reproduced. She centered her research efforts on one of the most controversial prison environments, California State Supermaximum Prisons, also known as Supermax Prisons, also known as Solitary Confinement, also known as The Hole. But there were just a few problems. For one, there was no publicly available information on Supermax prisons or the people imprisoned within them, nor was the information in the state archives. And prison officials would not allow Ryder to conduct file reviews, let alone interviews. And if those weren't big enough obstacles, her own IRB, or Institutional Review Board that deals with protecting human subjects, was hesitant to approve any study on people imprisoned in solitary confinement. The barriers Ryder encountered are partly responsible for the pixelated image we have of our U.S. prison system. So how did it come to this? Ryder blames both big shifts in law, policies, and culture, and small changes in the way researchers began to think about their work. On the big side, the U.S. criminal justice system as a whole turned away from the rehabilitative ideal and focused increasingly on punishment. For prisons, warehousing people and internal security became the end goal, rather than a means to a goal. 
This inward turn was reinforced by several court cases and federal laws that sacrificed constitutionality for safety and security concerns and actively discouraged residents from challenging prison conditions in court. As prisons became more opaque, new challenges for researchers sprouted like mushrooms in the dark. Some of the challenges facing prison researchers are mundane, such as logistical access issues. Others are not so. As the pains of imprisonment grew, so too did the emotional burden of doing research in prison. Bearing witness to pains of modern imprisonment and the difficulties in developing and maintaining the personal relationships that prison research requires became too much for many researchers. But there are modern success stories which distill some valuable lessons for would-be prison researchers. Writer, a successful prison researcher, says it's all about collaboration. Collaboration between scholars from different disciplines, between different scientific methods, and between researchers and others interested in prisons, including prison staff, residents, and anti-prison activists. A clear picture of our U.S. prison system requires historians, anthropologists, law scholars, and social scientists to work together. And because prisons are hard to access, scholars should use a variety of scientific methods to create various access points. These methods include historical, legal, interview, and statistical data in both collection and analysis. The scholars must establish ongoing relationships with correctional officials. But how does one do that? Ryder advises to look for the convergence of legal challenges, media attention, and security concerns. Pay close attention to the safety and security concerns of prison officials. This can be your entree for making contacts and starting conversations. Another sociologist in the criminology department at University of California, Irvine, Valerie Janess, studied incarcerated transgender individuals within California state prisons by combining different study methods as well as collaborating with prison officials. Throughout her study, Janess maintained access to 28 California state prisons. How did she do it? Janess, like Ryder, took advantage of an opportunity that was brought upon by three converging events. A research project that identified transgender incarcerated individuals as particularly vulnerable to sexual assault, a high-profile court case brought against the California state prison system by an abused transgender resident, and the increasing visibility of transgender residents. Jeunesse was able to capitalize on this moment because she had an existing relationship with prison officials, and she was able to connect her research agenda with prison official concerns. She used a variety of research methods to access the prisons at various points, including quantitative data, interviews, and self-report data about the residents' day-to-day lived experiences. Jeunesse attributes much of her study's richness to unplanned ethnographic observations of both residents and staff, which she characterizes as serendipitous. Writer, too, ultimately benefited from a convergence of legal challenges, media attention, and security concerns. In the summer of 2011, prisoners in one of California's supermax prisons went on a well-publicized hunger strike. Even the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Torture commented on the strike, and it became the foundation for a new lawsuit challenging the conditions of confinement in the prison. This high-profile event led to the public release of new data about the residents housed in supermaxes in California and opened up opportunities for journalists, researchers like Ryder, and others to visit California's main supermax, Pelican Bay State Prison. Even so, when Ryder set out to study these prisons, there was no data, no access point, and no IRB approval. So Ryder got creative. She looked in the archives of the legislators, who authorized building supermax prisons and sought out individuals who had worked on and designed facilities to collect oral histories about their roles on the project. 
To find out who was housed in these supermax prisons, she contacted the statisticians working with the Department of Corrections to discuss the data that were collected and what kind of reports were produced. To overcome IRB issues, she found and interviewed former residents of supermax prisons. This creativity extended to writers' methods. She used historical methods to investigate the legislative and political development of the supermax prison. She used sociological, anthropological, and ethnographic methods to understand the impact of the institutions on both individuals and prison culture. She used quantitative criminology and statistical methods to understand the relationship between supermax use and racial segregation, recidivism, and violence. And she used legal scholarship and case law analysis to understand the relationship between litigation and modern incarceration techniques. She also developed a vast network of individuals who could help her gain access to and understand the various aspects of her data. This network spanned the spectrum of interest in prisons, including state-level prison leadership, prisoners' rights lawyers, prison advocacy organizations, and criminal justice journalists. To build her network, she volunteered as a college instructor at a medium-security California prison. She attended the annual meeting of the California Correctional Officers Union, and she volunteered to conduct legal monitoring visits for prisoners' rights organizations. This network provided a broad range of experts to help understand the data set she pulled, how a corrections department interpreted a certain policy, and how to develop strategies for identifying people who had spent time in supermaxes. But remember, access is not the only reason for our pixelated image. Those interested in prison research must acknowledge the emotional and ethical challenges of working in prison research. As a prison researcher, collaborating with such a diverse network of interests in a space so fraught with emotions, you must prepare for and deal with the sticky ethical issues that come with the work. Cultivating relationships with prison officials and those who work in prisons can jeopardize research subjectivity. And policy-oriented research, particularly in a divisive area like prisons, may produce unintended consequences. What happens, for example, when the prison reform advocates in your network want you to speak out to bring about reforms that could end a hunger strike? Reforms that your prison official partners do not want? How do you decide on the right thing to do as a researcher? When faced with this circumstance, writer decided to stick with providing facts, such as objective descriptions of the institutions, and she refrained from making policy judgments about the conditions of confinement residents were protesting. Her seeming emotional distance from the subject of prison reform led to an uncomfortable conversation in which an advocate called into question her ethical motivations and the value of her research. Ryder did indeed consider how her association with advocates could impact her access to the prisons, but that wasn't the only consideration. Her work in the prison had impacted her understanding of security concerns in a way she did not understand previously. She was also concerned about taking a stand only to have it produce unintended consequences, such as new and differently harsh forms of punishment. Prison research has a set of unique challenges, but they are not insurmountable. The U.S. prison system is too big and too impactful to remain understudied. As more researchers look to add pixels to our image, they might keep in mind the lessons of Janess and Ryder. Collaboration is key, and don't shy away from sticky issues. Explore them. Keep on exploring them. That wraps another episode of the Ace Tip Podcast, where we translate science into sense. Also, remember... You can find one-page summary overviews written in plain language and short knowledge burst, which are essentially 30-second overviews of all the research we cover on the JCoin website. 
Our conveniently packaged research summaries may help you remember what you heard here, and they will definitely help you translate this research to your staff, friends, colleagues, or students. Additionally, we'd like to thank NIDA, Dr. Faye Taxman, and all the students and staff at ACE, including our podcast mastermind, Shannon Magnuson, who is the brainchild behind this podcast. Two additional notes. If you're a researcher and you'd like us to consider using your research for an upcoming podcast, send it to me at d-r-u-d-e-s at gmu.edu. If you'd like to support our podcast to keep the sense coming, tell your colleagues and staff about ACEDIT or assign us to your students. Thanks for listening. Please tune in again soon for another episode of the ACEDIT podcast, where we translate science into sense.